Well, good morning. Happy Easter. It's good to see so many of you uh, this morning. Uh, before we get started, I know if, if we haven't met yet, if we haven't spent any time together, I would love to meet you. If this is your first time back since the pandemic started, please come up and say hi to me. My name is Charles, and uh, I would love, love to meet you. If you're joining us from home or you're watching this some other, uh, at some other time, would you do me a favor and just take a picture of you and whoever you're worshiping with and send that to us? We would love to see uh, all the people that we're joining with in worship this morning on this Easter morning. As we dig into this passage, it's important to remember how we got here. Uh, it wouldn't be a shocker to anybody that we're going to talk about Jesus's resurrection um, Easter. Uh, a week ago, we looked at the triumphal entry. That was when Jesus finally arrives. It was a glorious arrival into the city of Jerusalem, and that was a high moment. But a lot has happened over the past week. Uh, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, and uh, then he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And uh, he was, he was uh, abducted, he was kidnapped, he was abandoned by his closest friends. One of his dearest friends even denied even knowing him. And of course, he was put under trial for a crime that he didn't commit, and he died a death that he didn't deserve. That was Good Friday. And the last story that we have here in, uh, in Luke, right before this one, is that a man named Joseph of Arimathea, that's not J- Jesus' dad, but Joseph of Arimathea took, took the body of Jesus and buried him in a tomb. And then there was silence. Uh, we call this Silent Saturday, which characterizes the silence of God during the day after Jesus' crucifixion, the day between his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so that's where we pick up here uh, in, in chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Is everything okay, Jeff? Don't know what's happening. We'll just labor forward, huh? Okay. And so that's where we'll pick up here in verse 1, chapter 24. Uh, This is early morning on Sunday morning after, uh, after their Sabbath day. Hear the word of the Lord. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stopping, stooping, and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. 
God, we're, we're asking as your people gather together on this Easter morning that you would catch our hearts with a fresh wonder at just what this is and all that it means for us. And I pray that you would give me strength, your servant, uh, to serve these, these people, your people, very well. Strengthen my words and give me clarity in my mind, I ask. Be my helper as I preach. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When was the last time that your heart was seized with a sense of wonder? Like maybe something took your breath away or left you staggered a little bit? I can't remember the last time that happened to me, but you should treasure those moments. They don't come very often. I came across an article in uh, paddlemag.com, of all places, uh, that uh, collected for us, it was really hysterical, that collected for us all of these, uh, these one-star reviews that people had left for national parks, and some of them are hilarious. These are people that had traveled all over the country to kind of come and see something that they were hoping would you know, but be really impressive to them, and uh, and they were dis- they were just left singularly unimpressed. And some of them are uh, hysterical. Some of them are silly. One person called the Grand Canyon a mediocre canyon. My favorite one was about the Delicate Arch in Utah. I don't if you've if you've never seen it. It's a it's a cool rock formation that kind of comes up out of the ground and and uh, and creates this arch. And the, the setting is just spectacular. And uh, somebody said, it looks like it might fall over, and um, it looks nothing like it does on the license plate. (laughs) And these were people, you get the idea, these are people that, that traveled somewhere looking to be impressed by something, and they were left unimpressed. And they were so disappointed that they felt the need that they should pan the whole place on, like, with a one star review on the internet. And what they were was they were disappointed in their lack of wonder. And you know, sometimes I wonder if Christianity might feel that way to us sometimes. Like sometimes it feels like we should be happier than we are. Like if you take the claims of Jesus seriously, then, then there is a lot our lives are, are called to, right? The, 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 we're supposed to be morally serious people. We're supposed to take our neighbors seriously and love them as best we can. Uh, we're supposed to take the claims of Christ seriously, and there are certain responsibilities that we're to use our lives to, to fulfill. And often what I come across as a pastor, just privileged in conversations with people who have been following Christ, I, I often hear this, especially in, in moments of deep discouragement or disappointment. Isn't following Christ supposed to feel better than this? And I can't help but wonder if that might be what these women were feeling that Sunday morning as they made their way to the, to the tomb. Luke says it's early dawn, uh, uh, and a literal translation of that would say that it was deep dawn. So it was still dark in the morning, and it was probably a little bit chilly, and the the darkness of the time of day is probably at least something like a picture of the sadness that would have been in their hearts because Jesus was dead. Jesus was somebody that uh, that they ate with, that they traveled with, they listened to him teach, 
conversations with him. They felt enjoyed and respected by him. And more than that, they trusted him. They had laid the weight of their hope in him. And they are making their way to the tomb, wrestling with a deep, deep disappointment. And I want to say something to you here. It is important for us to see that the first news of Jesus' resurrection, the empty tomb, came to disappointed and discouraged people. I'm going to look at three different responses that each one of these discouraged people have to news of the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to make my way through it. The first is confusion, and then we'll talk about disbelief. And then we'll talk about wonder. Confusion, disbelief, and wonder. First we see confusion. Why are, why are these ladies confused when they get to the tomb? Well, the truth is nothing is where it's supposed to be, right? They show up in the tomb. Uh, the stone has been rolled away. In another account of the story, these women had discussed amongst each other what they were going to do about this huge stone that would be blocking the entrance to the tomb. And they show up and it's not there. That's weird. That would be confusing. And then they walk in and uh, all they find are the linen cloths that were wrapped around Jesus's body a couple days before. That's the only thing that's there. And the passage says that they're perplexed. They're confused. Nothing is where it's supposed to be. And the question for us is how does God meet them in their confusion? Well, God meets them in their confusion by sending them a message, by revealing his will to them, by acknowledging through his divine revelation just something of what is going on. And it looks like in the passage that a couple of um, men have just appeared out of thin air in this tomb with them. As well, it looks like a sudden manifestation. That's the way it reads. And it describes their clothes as dazzling white. That, that's the same word that Luke used to describe Jesus' clothes uh, when, it, when he was radiating divine glory at the transfiguration. These are heavenly creatures. Th- these are angels that they're talking to. And, and God entrusts this message of what had happened to Jesus these women and their discouragement with these incredible words. He is not here. He is risen. And what, what, this, what this must have meant to these ladies in, in, at these moments must have been, um, must have been just impo- powerful because what he is doing is he is revealing to them That God's plan through Jesus is not abrogated in any way. In fact, they tell him that in some ways they should have known this would have been coming. the, The message calls them to remember conversations that Jesus had had with them and other disciples uh, about just what was going to happen. In fact, three times in Luke, twice in chapter 9 and once again in chapter 18, Jesus predicts that he will be delivered into the hands of sinful people that he will be killed, and that he will rise again. And what's amazing is this, this verse says, this next verse says, and they remembered. It's like it all clicked together for them and it made sense. And what they, what they come to understand 
is not that they have a full awareness of everything that Jesus is up to, but that God's divine will through Jesus is still in play here. Nothing has been stopped. And their faith in him is not misplaced. They don't need to understand everything else about what's going on in the world. Their confusion is not completely erased for them. But God comforts them with this divine news about who Jesus is. And I bring this up because there is so much confusion around us all the time, isn't there? I don't think it can be stated enough times that we live in a a daggone information age, and yet we are still often confused about the state of the world. Like often often when we look around ourselves... There's, there, there are often more questions than answers for us. And as Christians, we often feel the burden of having to square uh, the, a state of the world that's not as it should be with the same, and in the same breath say that God is sovereign and benevolent and loving. That is a, that is a hard thing to, to rationalize. And it's often very confusing for us trying to make sense of all of that. And then take it a step further, I'm often confused about me. Why do I so often want things that I know are bad for me or bad for the people that I love? As Paul says in Romans, why do I do the things I don't want to do? We are often confusing people. We are confusing people in a confusing world. How often do we say things like, we do something dumb or or harmful? Do we say things like, uh, I don't know what I was thinking, right? Because often we're not thinking. And confusion is often something that's just so true about these days that we're in. And where do we go to make sense of this? Well, with these same words, these precious words that the angels delivered to these ladies at the tomb. He isn't there. He is not dead. But that He is risen. And that is the Christian confession that holds us. That holds us. See, it, doesn't, it doesn't explain everything about ourselves and the world for us. But it is enough to hold us in hope while we wait for Jesus to return. Because when, when Jesus comes out of that tomb alive and healthy, what He's doing is He is undoing the dark hold that these things have on this world and around us, it is saying things like, he is saying things like darkness and pain and suffering and death no longer get to have the last word about who you are or about this world that Jesus loves. And it further, it tells us that nothing, not even death, is getting in the way of God accomplishing his pre-eternal plan for the redemption of the world and his people. And so while we may labor continually for the rest of our lives in some state of confusion, what we are given here in this message is enough to hold us in hope that Jesus indeed is risen. And he encourages us. It's a profoundly encouraging thing. And what do they do? What do they do with a message that's given to them? A message of this kind of weight and importance. That Jesus is not dead. 
Well, they do what everybody should do when you're given good news. They start to, to think about who they can take it to. So it says they make their way quickly back to tell it to the other 11 disciples. Judas is no longer a part of the 12. So they go to the 11 disciples and it says into the rest of them. That's probably the other group of 120 disciples and who knows who else and tells them what they see. And what do we see when they do that? We see disbelief. Look at verse 11. It says, These words seemed to them an idle tale. To them it was nothing more than a rumor, something that somebody made up. Now I want to be clear on this point because this does not reflect well on these men, does it? They were disregarding eyewitness testimony from multiple people, right? To not just an empty tomb but also to a divine message given to them from angels. they got multiple people coming back saying this. Why in the world? The obvious question is, why in the world could they so casually dismiss news like this? The text doesn't tell us. Perhaps it was probably a lot of reasons. Perhaps it was because these were women that were delivering the message. It doesn't say that specifically, but Luke is always referencing gender dynamics of the day. He's always kind of making the point. And it's possible he's trying to make a point that, hey, look at these idiot men that are not believing these, these dutiful women. Perhaps it was because the story in its own right is hard to believe. Perhaps it was because they were afraid. All of that is likely. I tend to think that it's some mixture of of all of these things. But it's important to note that somehow this team of people that have been bombing around with Jesus for a number of years now, it wasn't long ago they actually witnessed Jesus raise somebody else from the grave. But But these people somehow can't believe for themselves that Jesus himself beat death. That it's just so, it's just an idea so crazy and far-fetched that it leaves them incredulous. And here's the amazing thing about their disbelief. Is that these same men and these same women become the ones who are entrusted with the message of Christ's resurrection and become the ones who are responsible for the building of Christ's church on that pronouncement. That God takes a bunch of people that disregard something they don't understand right away and commits himself to them and uses them in profound ways for the proclamation of the, of the wonder of the gospel. That, that, and, and how does he do that? What we see is that Jesus never gave up on them. That even though they disregard something that they should have taken seriously, Jesus continues to reveal himself to people who do not believe with the hope that one day they will believe. That he, in his profound grace, he continues to pursue these men and entrust them with weighty responsibilities. Uh, why? Why? Because the resurrection is the, the re- hear this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the linchpin to our whole faith. Because if none of this happened, then nothing that we're doing here and nothing that we say we believe matters. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, if he really did, 
then we have to take seriously everything that he says. To paraphrase what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ never rose from the dead, everything that we're doing is in vain, is what he says. All of our preaching is futile. All of our worship is futile. All of our work is futile. And, and if, he didn't, if he didn't rise from the dead, then we should eat, drink, and be merry. And we should throw a party like there's no tomorrow. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then there really is no tomorrow. But listen, if he did rise from the dead, then it says that the forgiveness of sins is real. And that tomorrow is everlasting. And that one day there will be a world where there will be no more death. There will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning. None of these things that we are confused about will continue to persist. God's rule, God's just rule, and His loving rule forever and perfect all the time. That's the promise. A year ago, Tish, uh, Tish Harrison Warren She's an Anglican priest, if you've never heard, heard of her. She hit, man, she's a great writer, uh, just fiery priest. Um, she hit us with this incredible article about a year ago making this exact point. This is what she says. I am a Christian today not because it answers all my questions about the world or about current suffering. It does not. And not because I think it is a nice, coherent, moral order by which to live my life. And not because I grew up this way or have fond feelings about felt boards and hymn sings. Anybody remember felt boards? And not because it motivates justice or helps me to know how to vote. I am a Christian because I believe in the resurrection. If it isn't true, she says, to heck with it. And if you're familiar with that quote, you know I paraphrased that last line. She didn't say heck, but I, I, uh, there are children in here. But I actually don't think that she was cursing when she said that. Because what she's saying is that if the resurrection is not true, then then this whole system of beliefs is accursed in some way. And so let me just sit here and ask you this question. What do you believe about the resurrection? If it is the linchpin to our faith, then how you feel about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead is of critical importance. And listen, if you, don't believe, if you can't bring yourself to believe this, I want you to hear a couple things. One is, I want you to know just how loved you are and that there is friendship for you in this place. But I want to ask you a question. If, 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 uh, what holds the weight of your hopes and dreams? Like, what, what do you look, look at that, that might hold the weight of all that you're longing for? And when death comes, as it comes for all of us, is it sturdy enough to hold you in those moments? And if you ever want to talk about it, I want you to know I'm right here. I love those conversations. And if you do believe in the resurrection, if you do believe that it's true, well, then the most wonderful thing I can tell you this morning is that Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. That you are united to him in his death. This is what the Bible teaches us. That you, you, just by virtue of your faith in Jesus, 
You are united to Jesus in, your de- in his death, and you are united to him in his new life, life everlasting. His resurrection is your resurrection. And in Jesus, new life is the new normal that he offers us. It is simply wonderful to consider. And that's where understanding the joy of the resurrection takes us, isn't it? It takes us to a sense of wonder. You know, not everybody dismissed this as an idle tale. I don't know exactly how, what Peter felt about this news that he was receiving. He might have believed it or, or he might have not. But it says Peter ran to the tomb. Men did not run in that day. He had to find out for himself what was going on. He ran to the tomb. Peter, the one who denied Jesus, the one who thoroughly abandoned Jesus, Peter, the same one who must have been feeling just immense amounts of guilt as he watched Jesus go through what he did. Peter, Peter, the one who denies Jesus is the one who has to go find out for himself. And it says he gets to the tomb He stoops and he walks in and he sees the linen cloths lying in a heap where Jesus' body is supposed to be. And then what happened? He starts to walk back and it says Peter marveled. You know another way you could have uh, translated that word? Wonder. Not long ago, a friend of mine sent me the story of a man named Bill Souter. Bill is a historian who has worked on uh, researching the Titanic really since almost shortly after the discovery of where the wreck of the Titanic was back in 1985. So he's been working on uh, researching what is brought out of the ocean for decades now. And uh, it's been said of him that he might know more about the Titanic than the builders do. I mean, he's just been so immersed in studying everything that's uh, taken out of the ocean. And so everything that comes up from the ship just gets sent straight to his lab. And uh, he has more, he's the one who has more regular interaction with the remains of the ship than, than really anybody. And he was giving an interview not too long ago. I mean, I think it might have been two years ago. Uh, with National Geographic, um, just talking about his work, when he described an experience that he had that he says he will, ne- he will remember it to the day he dies, is what he said. And he talks about when they discovered the Sawfield perfume vials. Now, Sawfield was somebody who was on the Titanic, first class passenger, survived uh, the, the wreck, but he brought, he, he brought perfume vials that he was taking with him. And uh, he said that the way he described the lab was that it had a, just a, a powerfully unpleasant aroma about it. These are his words. He says, the things that come out are wet, they're rusty, they're rotten, and the smell that comes off of it is perfectly alien, is what he says. He said, it's a kind of death that you've never experienced it. The lab, he says, is kind of unpleasant. And at some point, he he said, somebody opened a satchel and out comes what he called the fragrance of heaven. It was the most delicious thing you ever smelled. He said it smelled like flowers and fruit. It was just overwhelming and he'll never forget it. This man, this large bearded man breaks down and starts weeping. 
as he remembers the experience when he came to understand, this is the way he put it, the fragrance of heaven overcame the stench of death. All those years later, he never lost that sense of wonder. And and my friends, I just hope it never gets old for you. But I hope the wonder of an empty tomb continues to grab you. Because the promise that holds us is that the fragrance of heaven overwhelms the stench of death. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, this is almost too good to be true. And we stand here almost incredulous ourselves that it is. And so we pray that you would hold us in the hope that this calls us to. And Spirit, work in us a fresh sense of wonder at all that you have given us and that you, Jesus, are alive again. Thank you for that. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.